Well, we are living in strange times, aren't we? We're living in a time when you might be having some really big questions of life, questions like, when will we get back to normal? And even when we get there, will it feel anything like the old normal or has life changed dramatically for a very long time into our future? What sort of future do we have? There might well be big questions that are floating around in your mind about life in the here and now. Uh, As we look at Romans 9, there's a big question that Paul is answering in these verses. He's looking at the big question of whether or not God is just to bring about judgment on human sin. Is God right to deliver his wrath on humanity? If he has made a world in which he has decided that some of humanity will be rebels towards him, is God right then to deliver his judgment and his punishment on them? Have a look with me at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? It's the same question really that's come up earlier. We looked at it last week in verse 14. It's the question, is God unjust? Is it unfair for God to bring about judgment on humanity when God is sovereign? That is, God is the one who rules over everything that happens in his world, including the decisions of humanity to to either turn to him in trust or turn away in rebellion. Is God right to do this? And so Paul mounts a defence of the character of God and the nature of God in these verses. Have a look with me again at verse 20 and 21. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. Paul's initial answer to this question as to whether or not God is right and just to do what he does in his world is simply that God made the world and therefore he's got an inherent right to do with it whatever he wants. He uses this analogy of the potter and the clay and he describes how absurd it would be for that lump of clay spinning around on the wheels to say to the potter, why have you made me in this way? It would be a crazy thing for the clay to do because the potter has the right to mould that clay into whatever it is that he likes. See, God is right to do whatever he likes with his world. Now that question of whether or not God is unjust in the way that he deals with his world is a question that Job asked. The book of Job details the life of Job and the enormous suffering that he goes through. And throughout the book, Job wants to ask the question of God, is God just? Job gets the opportunity to ask that question of God. At the end of the book of Job, God speaks out of a storm to Job and God describes the fact that he made the world and everything in it. And not only did he make it, but that he sustains it and he's actively involved in everything that is happening in his world. And then Job gets the opportunity to speak and to respond to God. And Job decides that he'd prefer not to speak. Job has the opportunity that you and I might want to have that same opportunity to ask God the question, is God just? And the answer, the simple answer that God is the creator of the world is enough for Job. 
Thankfully, in the book of Romans, that's not all that Paul gives us. He moves on from describing that God is the creator of the world and therefore has a right to do with his world whatever he wants. But we need to step back into Romans 3 to get the backdrop again to understand more more about what he's talking about in these verses. In Romans 3, that exact same question of whether or not God is unjust is asked. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. See the question? Is God unjust to bring about his wrath and judgment on humanity? The answer in Romans 3, absolutely not. God is just. Why? Well, Paul goes on to explain in Romans 3, in verse 9 to 12, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So why is God right to bring judgment on humanity? Because all humanity have sinned. Because everyone has turned away from God. Everyone is a rebel before the king of the universe. And so God is right and just to deliver his wrath and his judgment on all human beings. Me and you and everyone else in the world. So we want to ask the question of God, haven't you done the wrong thing to judge people, to create a world in which there is wrath and judgment? And there's an answer in Romans 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. We think we long to ask the question of God, is this just? But in reality, if we had the opportunity to speak to God, the whole world would be silenced. Job's an example of that. Job had the opportunity to ask the question and preferred not to say anything. See, anyone wanting to ask God the question, aren't you doing the wrong thing, is going to be silenced before God because everything that God does is right and just and proper in his world. And God is going to bring wrath and judgment on sinful humanity. But our issue of fairness, that question of whether or not God is acting rightly and properly, makes us feel like a world in which some of humanity, in fact most of humanity, looks like it is headed towards an eternity under the condemnation of God, feels like it's harsh. And it feels like it's harsh especially if God is the one who is doing the hardening. So the big problem, the big question that comes out of this for us really is, if God hardens people, then isn't God unjust to deliver judgment on those same people that he has hardened? So it's worth us looking into what it is to have hearts hardened by God. If you can think back to Romans 1, we looked at this quite a while ago now, but Romans 1 describes what happens in the hardening of hearts. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 
When God hardens hearts, he gives people exactly what they desire. Last week we looked at Pharaoh as well. Pharaoh is a similar example. If you look at the book of Exodus, uh, God hardens Pharaoh's hearts and repeatedly we're told that in the book of Exodus. But alongside of that, Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens people who are wanting to harden their hearts. Humanity is a very willing participant in this process. But why do we have a world with judgment at all? Have a look with me at verse 22 and 23. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Judgment exists for the glory of God. We have a world where sinful humanity is rightly judged and it's rightly judged for the glory of God, for God's glory to be known to the objects of his mercy and in order for God to be glorified. I've only bought one diamond in my life. It was an engagement ring for Jen. Uh, But when you go to see diamonds, they always present them to you on a black velvet backdrop. Because in in order to see the, the wonder of the diamond, all of the beauty of the diamond and the way that the light reflects off it, the best backdrop to see a diamond on is a black backdrop. And the best way for us to see the glory of God and the wonder of the mercy that God has shown to us in the gospel is to see that clearly against the backdrop of the rightness of the wrath of God on human sin. In order for us to best understand the glory of God in saving sinful humanity, in being gracious and merciful and compassionate to some in the gospel, is to understand and see clearly the right judgment of God on sinful humanity is to see and understand the wrath and judgment of God against a rebellious humanity before him. And so we have the black backdrop of God's wrath on sinful, rebellious humanity to compare the wonder of his mercy and grace towards those whom he saves. In the last few years, the wellness and well-being has been a growing industry in our world. Uh, Many different uh, places you can find either magazines or website articles or even businesses that, that spring up in order to put before people all sorts of goods and services that will promote our well-being or our wellness. And in effect, lots of these are saying the most important thing that we can do is maximise our health and wealth and happiness. And there's a Christianized version of this that says that God exists in order to bring about our maximum happiness, our wellness or our maximum health, wealth and happiness. But if that's true, God isn't doing a great job of that. Because at the moment, our happiness is reducing. Our health and wealth and well-being is going downhill very, very rapidly. The truth is that we are not the ones who are at the centre of God's world. God is at the centre of God's world. 
He is the one for whom and through whom our whole universe exists. And our world exists for God's glory. We live in a world where there is judgment on sinful humanity and mercy and grace on that same sinful humanity, all for the end cause of the glory of God. And so the glory of God is revealed clearly when those who are saved can clearly see what they are saved from. And so the world we live in is entirely not centred around us, but it is completely centred around God and His glory. The universe exists for Him, and we're simple bit players in God's huge drama of salvation. Paul goes on to defend God in these final verses by pulling out some quotes, some Old Testament quotes. Let me take you through them. Initially, they're quotes about uh, the Gentiles. Let me read for you from verse 25. He says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called children of the living God. The Gentiles have been included into God's plan. And in these verses, Paul is reminding people that this has actually been God's plan all along. And so as the gospel goes out, as the word of God and the promise of the gospel goes out, and many Gentiles are gathered into God's people and receive all the blessings of the gospel, like he's described in chapters 1 to 8 then that is exactly what God has promised in the past. God is good for his word. None of his word has failed. And he continues to defend God's word in the remaining verses, verse 27 to 28. But now he's going to be talking about Israel. And so verse 27 says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And so these verses show us that Israel will only have a remnant saved from them. That God's word was, God's promise was, that even though Israel would be a massive nation, he would only save a remnant from that nation. There would be only a few Jews that would turn to Jesus in trust and be saved. And so as Jew and Gentile are gathered, as many Gentiles and a few Jews are gathered into God's people, and people may have been thinking, well, I wonder if God is good for his promises. He's made all these Old Testament promises to all of Israel, Paul clarifies that God is absolutely good for his promises, that he's promised to save a remnant from Israel and to save Gentiles also. And so many from all nations are being gathered exactly according to God's plan. We're living in a world that's very unknown at the moment, aren't we? It feels like there's chaos and disorder on a number of fronts and we've got massive uncertainties in what life will be like. It's worth understanding, it's worth being reminded that our God is in control and his word never fails. He is achieving his purposes and growing his kingdom and working for his own glory 
exactly according to his plans and according to his word. And so we ought to be people that have enormous confidence that nothing in our world is outside of the control of our God. Take heart and take comfort amongst the chaos in the God who controls all things for his own glory. As Paul finishes up in Romans 9, we've been talking so much and seeing so much of the sovereignty of God, of the rule of God over human hearts, being able to turn both Jew and Gentile, uh, either in hardening some or in showing mercy and compassion to others. And as we get to the end of chapter 9, we go back and look at human responsibility. We'll look at the reality that those who turn to Jesus will be saved and those who fail to put their trust in Jesus won't be saved. Have a look with me at verse 30 and 32. 33 to 32. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. See, the Gentiles are saved because they've turned to Jesus in trust. And Israel, at least most of Israel, are not saved because they've sought to make their own righteousness. See, God is sovereign, but how people respond to Jesus matters. How you and I respond to Jesus matters. And for anyone in the whole world, anyone who turns to Jesus in trust, they won't come under God's wrath and judgment. They'll receive all of the blessings of the gospel. So we ought to be the people who consistently remind one another of this truth of the gospel. Because it's so natural and so easy for us to do what Israel did. They sought to to make their own righteousness, to gain their own righteousness through their obedience to the law. And we can do exactly the same thing so easily. So be someone who consistently reminds yourself of the truth of the gospel in order that you would hang on to Jesus all of your days. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Search the scriptures so that you would know the truth that you are a sinner saved by grace alone through faith alone. Be reminded of that truth day in and day out. Because if you're anything like me, you can naturally start to, to look at the way that your life should change as a result of putting your trust in Jesus. You can see a growing godliness, a care and concern for others, a godliness in character that can make you think, God must be really pleased with me now. The truth of the gospel is God is never pleased with who I am, but he's pleased with Jesus. And if I turn to Jesus in trust, then he'll be pleased with me. Because God is gracious and merciful and kind and compassionate. If I continue all of my days to put my trust in the Lord Jesus, then I'll receive the blessings of God, the mercy and compassion of God. And so I need to be someone who continually reminds myself of that truth in the scriptures in order that I never turn away from that truth. 
Romans 9 speaks really clearly about the wrath of God, the judgment of God on sinful humanity. We've got a Christian desire to avoid wrath and judgment. They're not well received in the world that we live in. I imagine if you've spoken about God's wrath and judgment with your friends, with your workmates, that it hasn't been particularly well received. It's a bit like at a family gathering having the awkward aunt or uncle that you know is going to say something that is going to put people offside. And so you put that aunt or uncle off in the corner of the party and you hope that no one goes over to speak to them. We're a little bit like that with the wrath and judgment of God. It's a bit awkward and we want to avoid it as much as we can. But actually, it actually displays clearly the glory of God in saving anyone. The reality around the wrath and judgment of God is that God is right to judge all of humanity for all of eternity. And we need to know that be reminded of it and dwell on it in order that we would see the wonderful glory of God in the gospel as he shows mercy and compassion to us when he never ever is obliged to. We ought to remember the wrath and the judgment of God most importantly because it shines a spotlight on the incredible mercy of God to those whom God has showed mercy. Because the end result for our universe, the end point for all of human history, is there will be a multitude beyond number gathered around the throne of God, praising him and giving glory to him for all eternity because of what he's done in salvation. Because of what God has done both in judgment on sinful humanity and in the undeserved mercy that he's shown to many, to the grace that God has shown to many. Because God has shown mercy and compassion to an undeserving people, to Jews and Gentiles, to his church, because God has saved only because of his mercy and grace, all glory goes to God for all eternity. Amen.